1: Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's me, Cindy, the host. Hi. Thanks so much for checking out the pod today. Uh, If you are not familiar, we are a listener-supported podcast on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can support us by making a contribution at basicfolk.com. You can also sign up for our newsletter and follow us on social media at Pod. Okay, hope you are ready for this. Tatiana Hargraves is who we are talking to today. When she was younger, Tatiana was a shit-hot fiddle player, recording her debut album at age 14, a first-prize winner at the prestigious Clifftop Appalachian String Band Festival Fiddle Contest that same year, and gaining all sorts of accolades before even graduating high school. After some thought, she went after a degree in ethnomusicology and performance at Hampshire College in Amherst, Mass., where she continued to play fiddle like a maniac. Her time in college, college allowed her to reconnect with her friend, the equally impressive banjo player Allison DeGroote. She reflects on one summer where she and Allison kept finding each other and jamming at various events and festivals. They decided to record their debut album and tour, and the duo are back again with the new record Hurricane Clarice, using traditional string band music as a way to interpret our uncertain times. Our conversation leads into topics like the negative impact of music as competition. Tati has spoken before of her experience competing on the Texas fiddle circuit that's pretty popular on the West Coast. After college, she moved to Durham to be closer and work with old-time legend Alice Gerard. Since 2017, she's been soaking up Alice's influence and knowledge through being her fiddle player and digitizing her old photos. I am fascinated by this person and her work. We're going to check out a song from Alison DeGroote and Tatiana Hargraves' new record, Hurricane Clarice. And then we'll get to our conversation with Tatiana Hargraves on Basic Folk. Here's the song, The Banks of the Miramichi. Tatiana, thank you so much for joining me today. It's so so nice to talk to you. I'm excited about this.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having
1: me. Oh man, I have such um, detailed questions. Yes. Uh, um, like sometimes I get like I feel like I like get like way too up inside my head and my questions are like half a page long, so we'll see how this goes. Stop me if I'm going overboard. Okay, I love it. I love it. Okay, excellent. You grew up in Corvallis, Oregon, which is about 90 minutes south of Portland with your parents, your older brother, Alex, who also plays fiddle. Your mom, I found, taught uh, violin using the Suzuki method, which you and Alex learn from that particular method, which if people don't know, it's very based in like learning by ear. Andrew Bird learned with the Suzuki method. I don't know if he's the most famous, but he's the most famous <laughs> in my brain. Um, so you and Alex are, like, very accomplished players in your musical circle, like, amazingly so, um, which makes me want to know about, like, your family musical history. Like, can you talk about what your family's, like, ancestral relationship to playing is like, and maybe how you've adopted and also how you've deviated from their approach?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um... My mom's family is very musical. There's not really a history of playing music in her family, but very like music appreciators, um, always listening to like jazz and classical records um, when she was growing up. And then my mom was like a total hippie and got really into like English folk music. And so she was really into kind of the more folky side of things. And then my dad... like.
1: Like, like a Fairport convention pentangle yes. type of stuff? she's yeah. obsessed.
0: Yeah, she tells the story of listening to a pentangle record, like borrowing it from a college roommate and like playing it so much that when she went to return the pentangle record to him, he like threw it across the room. He's like, no, you ruined it for me because she just listened to it like 24-7.
1: <laughs> oh, and he could hear it. Yeah. Yeah, so, I've done that.
0: Yeah. So very musical, um, on that side of the family. And as on my dad's side, he plays guitar and dobro and he got really into bluegrass music when he was kind of coming out of college. And his side of the family is also really musical. My grandfather plays trumpet. There's like cool old family photos from like Midwest kind of like brass bands and kind of that kind of music history. Um, so yeah, I think that the family's connection to music is strong. It's not necessarily fiddle music, <laughs> but mm. um it was always music was always a really big part of growing up and because my dad was really into bluegrass and my mom was really into folk and um also classical music. I think the violin fiddle was a good place for my brother and I to start and I was born in Chico, California, and my brother started taking lessons there. And there was a Texas style fiddle teacher, so that was kind of how that whole fiddle music thing got started. And then when I started taking lessons, I did Suzuki, but also did Texas style, like contest mm. fiddling. And that's like it was a very big, like Texas style contest fiddling community in the Pacific Northwest. So that was like a big part of my upbringing was playing fiddle contests. And then there was also like local bluegrass jams and stuff like that.
1: I listened to your episode of Cameron DeWitt's get up in the cool and <laughs> you're talking about and you're mentioning that there's this like huge thing on the West Coast with Texas fiddle. And I think Margaret Glaspie also is from yep. California and she played Texas fiddle. And now you have solved the mystery for me. So thank you, Tatiana.
0: Yeah, I grew up playing at fiddle contest with Margaret.
1: <laughs> That's so cool. We were talking about Cameron's podcast. Cameron DeWitt is a really great banjo player in the Baltimore area who has this podcast called Get Up in the Cool. And Tatiana was you were on it and you guys had a really it's a really good episode. You're talking about competing in Texas fiddle contests as a kid and how they have like impacted you kind of like negatively and held you back. Um, So I want to hear more about like your realization of that and how you've like worked to combat the idea of like needing to be a certain person or a certain type of player and how that freedom has made you like a different performer and maybe a different person. like is it easier to play with people now that you have that information about yourself?
0: Hmm. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting thing. Cause in, on the one hand, I think playing, like I loved the community around like going to the contests and seeing all my friends and like the whole preparing your repertoire to play in the contest, I think like taught me more about playing my instrument than a lot of other things like as I'm teaching music now I'm realizing oh like the preparation that I put into preparing for these contests like that taught me so many things about music that I take for granted now so in some ways there's like that side of it where it's like oh I actually like learned a lot musically from those experiences and they were really fun to see friends but the more negative aspect I think is just being in that competitive environment especially with like kids and I think it sometimes can at least for me it sometimes isolated me from really being able to connect Um unless I already like was friends with someone before a contest like sometimes it's mm. hard like making friends with someone your age when you're competing against them in a contest mm. the enemy yeah and it wasn't always like that like sometimes I made like really good friends and we'd like run around and play flashlight tag at night in the campsites. And like, there is a really positive Mm. thing too, but I think there is a lot of pressure to have to perform well, like also to like be perfect um, and Mm -hmm. to perform perfectly Mm. and not have any mistakes. And, and it's funny because that's not really what Texas fiddling is about. Like Texas fiddling is so playful like there's so much improvisation and playfulness in it, but then when you put it in a contest setting, it can lose some of that playfulness. And so I think now I'm finally being able to like tap into that playfulness a little bit more and feel less like I have to perform perfectly all the time. Mm.
1: I was reading some quotes from you as like a younger person when you were like about to enter college when you had long hair, (laughs) long hair, Tatiana. Um, You sound like super confident Talking about how music should be egoless. You don't have to be a virtuoso. Play the sounds you want to play. Sound is all around us. Um, okay. I don't
0: remember that at all. Where the where the okay. hell did you find that?
1: <laughs> um, in the depths of the internet. Wow. Um,
0: okay. But like, so listening
1: to you talk about uh, with Cameron and listening to you talk about now, like how those kind of competitions kind of like mess with you a little bit in terms of like your relationship to music. Um, And then hearing you talk about that, I wonder if, like, in between that time where you're like, I'm 18 and everything is great. I'm the best. Um, And I wonder if you experienced some, like, imposter syndrome or, like, weird critical feedback to get to this place where you thought you had to, like, be someone else. If that's true, like, what was it like to get? yourself back after that like I've gone through periods where I'm like oh I was right all along when I was like eight years old what was that like to like get yourself back or even like have you gotten yourself back
0: Mm. yes and no (laughs) I think being really visible as a kid put a lot of pressure on me to have to always like live up to this expectation of like having to like always exceed because there's this people are obsessed with like kids who play well (laughs) and um, I don't really like that really bothers me because um, there are a lot of kids who play really well and I it's uh, and I think like putting a spotlight on that doesn't really help the kids it's more like a spectator like thinking like wow that's like like I don't, I don't really know what the whole obsession is there, but from my perspective, it's like, there is a period I think between like 18 and now I'm 26 where I was like, and I still feel this a lot where like people still expect me to be who I was when I was 13, because that's when I became visible in the music community. Um, and I'm not. I mean, I'm still me, but I've developed a lot. I've grown up. Um, I'm still growing. And um, my, my music has changed. I've grown musically. And sometimes it's frustrating when I feel like people still see me as the 13-year-old girl on that first album I made. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think now, especially with this new album, it's a lot more personal. It has more original music on it. And it's a collaborative project where it feels like we're really making something that is like unique to us. And like, it still feels very grounded in tradition, but it doesn't feel like I'm making something because it's what I think I should be making, which um, I think it's been a long time. It's been hard to get here because there's so much like trying to live up to these expectations that people have of me from when I was like, 13 <laughs> um mm-hmm. and when you're a 13 year old and you're playing fiddle and like you're really visible it's like seen as this thing that's special even though like a lot of kids play music um but when you're visible like hyper visible it's like seen as something that's special and then when you grow up and it's like you're just another one of the kids playing music like it's like you but you still have to Sometimes I feel like I still have to, like, make myself seem a certain way.
1: Well, something that you and Allison, and I feel like this kind of um, relates in terms of, like, seeking out, like, a different type of musical identity. Something that you and Allison were talking about on your first record together about, like, learning old tunes from, like, old recordings. And sometimes there'd be, like, this imperfection or some kind of, like, dissonance that seems like it could have been done on purpose uh, or it could have been an accident but you and Allison don't try to like work over these blemishes you like kind of try to lean in and expand on them which I think is like such a good exercise on fighting perfectionism so like how does that impact your musicality and how do you see it like impacting your life outside of music
0: Mm -hmm. it definitely changes it's changed a lot I think even from our last album but I'm just starting to like give less of a fuck (laughs) and like I think that's the main thing but um like with this album like the way we recorded it was we had like a set of music like we would have if we were performing a show um and we played there were two sets and we would play through the set without stopping besides just like tuning which is different in the past I've always like you play one song you listen back and you're like, eh, like I think we could do it better. And then you do it again. You could have like, you know, seven takes of the same thing and you keep listening back and you're like constantly thinking about, okay, like what could I do better this time? It's like very heady. Our producer, Phil Cook, suggested that we don't do that this time because he we said that we wanted to capture that kind of spontaneous energy. Um, And so in the studio this time, yeah, it felt like this like, departure from that that kind of perfectionist attitude because we were just playing Mm. for fun and we hadn't seen each other for two years and we just got together like a week before the studio and just kind of like got used to playing together again and then in the studio it's just fun and I think that's something that perfectionism prevents you from having fun because you're always worried about the final product and so you're not enjoying the process as much Um, So that feels like an exciting thing for us is like being able to just enjoy playing with each other and not be so concerned about having a perfect product and more trying to like capture the process.
1: Getting ready for this interview like reminded me of preparing for like the Chris Thiele interview where like he has so many projects going on at once. And it and also, Tatiana, I feel like you and I speak like a different language. Like listening to you and Cameron talk on Get Up in the Cool, and I'm thinking of like if you and Brad Kalodner got in the same room and started talking, I would be like, Are you speaking English? I do not know. Like just because like I feel like I live in more of like the like singer songwriter triple A type of world. So like That to me seems like wild that you have like on your website you have like a half a dozen projects and then you like click another link and there's like a half a dozen more projects going on. I don't know if it's like a it's just like a thing that people do like if you and Allison just like constantly have you know Ethan Yojavits constantly has like 20 projects going on at once but can you talk about that a little bit like where did the motivation comes from to do so many projects with so many different kinds of peers
0: Hmm. it's fun (laughs) I I will say a lot of these projects aren't happening at the same time so like sure um, you know one project will kind of have its life cycle and then you'll have another one I feel like right now I have like two main musical projects, my duo with Allison and then my band Hard Drive. And those are kind of like my two priorities. And then I'm also like Which I should say
1: I could spend an entire afternoon thinking about how great of a name hard your of Hard Drive (laughs) is for your band. So good.
0: Yeah, we I mean that and that band was like very spontaneous because I was living with Sonia and Negosi. We were all housemates. And so we just like played together all the time and it just kind of naturally was like, oh, we should record an album and then people liked it. so we we've been doing shows and that's great, you yeah, know. Did. But um, with Allison and me it felt it feels a little bit more intentional because we're, we're both wanting to like tour and like promote it and I think in a more systematic way, whereas hard drive we're kind of like it happens when it happens. So I think it's mm-hmm. it would be hard to have multiple projects that you're approaching in exactly the same way. So for me, it's kind of like they just satisfy different parts of who I am. And they also feel very different musically. And then I also just play a lot of music around town in Durham. I play a lot with Alice Gerard. And that's also a very different thing because I'm just kind of trying to be whatever Alice needs in a fiddle player in that moment. And that's very different than when you're like leading your own project. And like, so yeah, I think having lots of projects are nice because they fulfill different parts of you. And I don't. I feel like I have a lot of different parts of me that want to be fulfilled. So mm. um, it's nice to have different outlets for different styles and and different types of social interactions and um, different levels of commitment as well.
1: Do you feel like you're a busy person?
0: Yeah, I'm way too busy. I'm also in grad school, and I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> you're crazy. Yeah. Uh,
1: we were talking about the album that you recorded in high school with a bunch of different players and two names that I recognize, Bruce Molsky and Mark Schatz. And you have seemingly been connected to the bluegrass and old time world since you were a little kid. Uh, You've known Lori Lewis for a long, long time. And those connections I am thinking are made because of the music camps and the festivals and the fiddle competitions that you took took part in as as a kid so how did you relate to those adult players back then as a kid and then how have your relationships changed
0: i love that question (laughs) um it's it makes me feel so like warm inside thinking about those relationships because i think that's something that's really special about the different music communities i'm in i mean you could say the music community but that, like there's all these little pockets in there I would say communities sure. but um, people are so I've been so lucky to have so many mentors figures like Bruce and Lori and when I was a kid I remember first meeting Bruce and like I was obsessed with him and like I got to meet him at this fiddle camp and he was so welcoming and so supportive of me and I never felt any pressure from him to have to be a certain way he was just always there and always supportive um kind of like and it feels like family my relationship with Bruce now is like we can talk about our frustrations about the music industry and and trying to figure out how to play a music that isn't that doesn't feel like it's supposed to be commercial to like have to commercialize it and like I don't know. It's nice having those kind of more serious conversations um, with mentor figures, um, because Mm -hmm. in the beginning it was more like just like really like positive support. um, And now I feel like I can really talk to them and get kind of deeper level advice. And with Lori too. And during COVID, I feel like those are the people that I kept in touch with the most. Like I talked to Lori a lot on the phone and Bruce, I wrote letters to each other. We both love fountain pens and we would write letters and it was just kind of interesting to notice like the people who I communicated with the most during the pandemic were like kind of going back to like who were the most like kind of close family type of connections Mm. from way back
1: (laughs) yeah yeah um you studied ethnomusicology and performance at Hampshire College in Amherst so how and and you still study and learn about the history of the music that you perform and the songs that you record how does studying and knowing the history of the music you're playing change your connection with the songs and with your instrument
0: yeah i that's always really important to me i do think since then i've become more um aware of like non-academic ways of knowing about histories i think Studying ethnomusicology, it's very, it can be very othering. I mean, it, it's an academic discipline, and it had a lot of changes within the discipline. But I think now I'm feeling, or I, I'm curious about these, you know, other ways of of learning histories that are outside of academia. Um, a lot of times, you have to go through that kind of academic lens to access these histories, like if they're in an archive, and you're reading like folklorist transcripts or whatever, like it's often through that lens, but I think it's, it's more important a lot of times to be more in tune with more kind of community histories and oral histories that aren't necessarily documented in those settings. Um, and I'm in grad school for library science right now, and I'm working in the Southern Folklife collection and just like, I'm learning a lot from like, working in an archive and and really seeing what goes on behind the scenes and also learning more about like community archiving efforts and like really the, the problematic history of archives in general. And like having that in conjunction with knowing like the history of like folklore and ethnomusicology, is kind of like, Oh, like, (laughs) it's not really the best approach all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Can you speak to how it's problematic? Yeah, um and this is stuff that I'm I'm learning more about now that I'm in school, but just I mean it it's like yeah, archives are attached to large institutions and and there's a lot of power in like who chooses what to go in the archive, what not to go in the archive, and also like it's kind of this trickle down because then a lot of times like the archive will be holding material documented by a folklorist so that folklorist is choosing who they're documenting and who they're ignoring and so then by the time what actually gets into that archive it's very limited and sometimes that you can find incredible stuff and you can like pull out these voices that you didn't know were there and that's awesome and I mean I think great example of that are like the stuff on the Altamont black string band music compilation with Fraser and Patterson and Gribalusk and York those are archival recordings that are so amazing that we have those um and so a lot of the work with like finding recordings of black string band musicians and also women musicians like we have to look into archives for all this stuff and it's so important that we have that but also thinking about like who is in control of the access to that material It's very like Mm gatekeeper vibes yeah um and also thinking about i've been thinking about lately like compensation a lot of times like folklorists like were very exploitative of the people that they recorded um so those are just some things I've been thinking about it's like how like if we're learning so much of this music from archival recordings like what kinds of what forms of compensation are there and also like what what types um, yeah and I'm just learning kind of more about community archiving efforts but that's like a really exciting thing I think
1: What's the difference between, and I don't know if you can speak to this, the difference between community archival projects and like an institutional archive?
0: Yeah, so like a community-oriented archive would be, I think there's a couple of different approaches. One would be like kind of a post-custodial thing. So there wouldn't necessarily be an institution that's holding the materials. It's like an institution might help digitize things or make things playable um like if they're in you know outdated technology or whatever so there's that kind of approach and then there's also having more like archives located in a community and being under um community control and like ownership um so yeah it's it's very complicated and I'm just learning mm-hmm. about it um so
1: I'll stay tuned for your yeah. <laughs> podcast when you finish your degree You moved to Durham in 2017, which is a very impressive uh, and unsung music town, I think. Um, You moved to be closer to Alice Gerard, the living bluegrass legend. Uh, If listeners are not familiar, uh, Alice Gerard famously released music with the late Hazel Dickens. Uh, They are like rock stars in the bluegrass world. You are her friend. You perform and work with her. You digitize her photos, which sounds like very fun and informative. You're going to be on her next record, which uh, I think she said she was going to start recording this month. What has her work meant to you throughout your life, and what does her friendship and mentorship mean to you now?
0: Yeah. um, I didn't really know who she was until, like, much later in my life. I think, like, I, I learned more, like, directly from, like, Lori Lewis, um, and I remember Lori telling me about Hazel and Alice, um, but I I first met Alice at um, a fiddle camp, the Ashokan Music and Dance Week um, in upstate New York that um, Jay Unger and Molly Mason run, and she was there, and, like, I still didn't really know – like, I knew her name. I knew she was, like, famous, but I didn't really, like, understand how, like, awesome she was until, like, I, like, went back the next year and I, like, knew who she was, and that was, like, kind of crazy to have, like, been there that first year and, like, seen her and, like, yeah. interacted with her.
1: <laughs> yeah, you are like, I'm such a fool.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, that next year, yeah, I got to sing with her, and that was really cool. And then – I think it really playing in Lori Lewis's band and we were playing, we recorded the Hazel and Alice Sessions album with Lori's band and I was touring that material with Lori and so I was really like deep into the Hazel and Alice repertoire through playing it with Lori and then I remember we were playing at IBMA and Alice came and sat in with us and I hadn't seen Alice since I was a teenager and it just kind of like, clicked I was about to graduate college and it just kind of clicks like oh like I should move to Durham because I've been playing all this repertoire and now I've seen like here's Alice and I haven't seen her in a long time and like it's so awesome to like see her and get to play this repertoire with her so then I moved here and immediately started working for her doing photo digitization and that was really kind of mind-blowing starting to dig into her photo archives like I knew that she was an incredible musician and that her and Hazel had really paved the way for a lot of women musicians, but all of her documentary work, like these photos that she's taken and the recordings she's made of all these old time and bluegrass musicians. Um, and she's always been kind of, she's always been a part of both of those worlds and kind of fluctuates between like the old time and the bluegrass and, she never moved to Nashville. <laughs> she never, like, <laughs> you know, did that. She she lived in Galax for a long time. And then she moved to Durham and she's been so involved. That's
1: Virginia, right?
0: Yeah, Galax, Virginia.
1: Yeah. They have that huge fiddle convention.
0: Yep. Yeah. And there's yeah. so many incredible musicians from around there. But yeah, I mean, just seeing her as I was trying to figure out what I was doing with my life, seeing Alice's trajectory, it was like, oh, it's possible to play music, be a part of multiple music scenes multiple music communities be super deeply rooted and also be creating new music and be super involved in social justice and I mean she's just kind of done it all (laughs) um that was I think really a pivotal moment was like sitting in her attic like digitizing photos for her Mm -hmm. and like seeing all these things that she's done and like thinking about what I wanted to do like fresh out of college and now I'm in library school also because I loved digitizing her photos so it's kind of like (laughs) a big a big moment I think
1: (laughs) there is a new documentary about Alice and this is kind of a, a silly question but you guys are all performing around one microphone and like everybody seemed to have this like understanding this like understood agreement about like who's on the mic when do I back off you know and like there's like really intense eye contact like, just for fun, can you talk about what you've learned about performing etiquette when there's only one microphone? And, like, what do you like and not like about the one mic performance? Mm.
0: I think I've learned a lot from Lori Lewis about that. Um, so, in Lori's band, there was kind of a center mic where she would sing into, and Tom would sing with her. And then I would kind of have my own fiddle mic on the side. But then when I was singing, I would come into the middle. Or if I was like, sometimes I would come and play, like if I was taking a solo, sometimes I would come and play in the middle. But if I was doing fills, I'd kind of just be more off, like back away from my own fiddle mic. So I think that's like, I really learned a lot from touring with Lori's band, um, like the mic etiquette. But it's usually like kind of the centerpiece, like within a bluegrass band, like you have that kind of centerpiece and everyone gathers around to sing it because it really, the harmonies when they, are sung in that close proximity. They sound so much more blended than when you're all on your separate mics. I think it sounds different. And it's just more fun. It's more connected. It's harder to do that kind of mic setup in, like, in louder venues or at big festivals because you can't mm-hmm. really have a lot of monitors. Um, I love it. Um, and Allison and I have kind of tried to do that as a duo, but we sit down, so it's sometimes limiting. So we're trying to find a new way to approach it because we want our instruments to be heard better and it's hard when we're sitting down why don't you just stand up because it's like feels more formal when we have to stand up like sitting down that's how we like to play for fun so it it feels more like us and it feels less performative
1: Mm. Mm Hmm. and we've already established that you hate when people watch you perform
0: (laughs) i love love performing i actually really love performing (laughs) Um, there's nothing like it. I have missed it a lot during COVID. Mm. I like performing music. I don't like performing personality. Mm. And I think when I'm Ooh. standing up, I have to perform a certain persona more than when I'm sitting down. Right.
1: So, uh, one summer you and Alison DeGroot, who you are in a duo with, you kept running into each other at different types of events and you'd met I read two different encounters with how you first met. One you met at a teen folk camp.
0: That's false. I don't know where that came from. Okay.
1: So. The is the true story you met at a festival in Victoria, British Columbia?
0: That's closer to the truth. We met it was <laughs> <laughs> um Yeah, we met, I was on tour with Bruce Molski and my brother. It was like, we, my album had just come out that Bruce had produced. I was like 13 or whatever. It was when Bruce almost got arrested at the border for taking my brother and I across the border.
1: (laughs) Whoa, you didn't have a permission slip.
0: Well, we did, but apparently they called my parents and my mom did pick up the phone. But it was all fine, but it was part of that same trip. And Allison came out to our show in Victoria. So I met her there at that show. And then we met again at Clifftop several years later. And I remembered her. And then when I was in school in Massachusetts, and she was also in school in Boston. And so we would see each other kind of around that Massachusetts scene. And then, um, I spent a semester living in Boston and, um, That's, I feel like we started playing more frequently then. And then that summer was when we were like at all the same festivals and we just like would play for hours together. Um, Yeah.
1: What about her playing and your playing work so well together and how have you changed each other's musicality?
0: I think we have a very similar way of listening and responding to each other's playing. So it, it works really well because will respond to what we're hearing in a similar way. I think we have a lot of similar musical influences within old time music and outside of old time music. So I think that also impacts how we listen and respond to each other's playing. Yeah, I feel like with Allison, I always just, I love seeing what happens when, like a lot of times, like when you're playing fiddle in an old time session, you're kind of just playing the whole time. You know, you're just playing the melody. You're really, you know, just doing it. Um, and it's really fun with Allison to kind of like feel more flexible. Like I can kind of lay out or like be a little bit more minimal. And I love seeing what Allison does with that. Um, and then also like the repertoire that she brings to the duo is really challenging um, to have to learn, like, for example, like a solo banjo tune, to have to learn that on fiddle It's like... It's hard <laughs> Us fiddle players we're used to everyone learning the fiddle tunes we're not used to having to learn the banjo tunes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the new album hurricane clarice you're using traditional string band music as a way to interpret our uncertain times why do you think like this style of music works to help ground you and help like interpret this uncertain times
0: I think because it's partly... Well, one thing is because it's what I've grown up with. So it's, it's like most of my life kind of revolves around this music. So of course it would be the way that I interpret what's going on in the world. But I think if you were to take it out of that context, I do think it is a very like historically rooted music. And a lot of the songs refer to historical events or like the Banks of the machine, the song that we sing, like that is very, that's grounded to a place and a time. There's a lot to be learned from that. And also within our music communities, there's so many different generations that we interact with. I think there's a lot that you can learn from being in those environments. And there's mm-hmm. a lot that you can also see of ways that you don't want to be with any sort of community I think you see that you you see ways that you want to be in ways that you don't want to be and then also within like looking to history to inform us of what to do like there's always examples of what we want to do and examples of what we want to not do and want to fight against and I think playing this kind of music gives you all of that
1: Phil Cook, who produced the album, told you and Allison he was getting grandmother energy from one of the instrumental tunes, which is funny. But what do you think he meant by that?
0: I think he was um, thinking about his grandmother. I think he was feeling a lot of things about his own family. And it was in the midst of COVID, so like when we couldn't see family, especially extended family and elderly family,
1: Especially grandmas.
0: Especially grandmas, and a lot of people's grandparents passed away in the last couple of years, and no one was able to see them or mourn together.
1: That comment led to like a deeper conversation, and you actually ended up including recordings of your grandmother's voices on the album, so your grandmother Sylvia and your grandmother Jean... And Allison's late grandmother, Shirley, are on the song Ostrich with Pearls. So what was that process like for you to get recordings of your grandmothers? And how did it make you feel closer to your family history?
0: That was really special. I found out that I have about two hour long interviews with my mom's mom and both of her grandmas that my aunt had made. Um... So I started wow. listening to those recordings and both of my great grandmothers were from Eastern Europe um, on my mom's side. So um, I'd never heard their voices before. Um, wow. And I was named after my great grandmother, Tilly. So that was really special as a part of like looking for recordings of my grandma. I found recordings of my great grandmothers as well. Um, and then on my dad's overachiever. Side, coming for a full circle (laughs) yeah um and then yeah with both Allison and me like there weren't any recordings of my grandma Jean and so I asked my uncle to like ask her some questions and record her and she has pretty bad dementia right now so and I haven't gotten to seeing her in a while and like I'll talk on the phone with my grandpa sometimes but usually she doesn't talk on the phone she also is really hard of hearing so it was kind of a nice way to get to connect with family and to hear her voice in a way that I hadn't heard in a while and on I had it's about a 25 minute recording of my uncle like trying to ask her questions and there's a lot of silence on the recording and sometimes Mm. she'll kind of get going with the story but we chose a, a segment where she talks about her favorite bird being a cardinal, which I I associate her with birds because um, that side of my family is really into bird watching. So we'd always go and visit, <laughs> you know, them and and look out and go bird watching, and so that just felt like a very like Grandma Hargraves thing to say. <laughs>
1: hmm. I want to hear more about like the generational communication, like in your family like generally. So I just got this thing for my mom where she answered a question about her life every week for a year and then like the company turns it into a book. And it seems like, you know, just based on like what she wrote in her stories, like the generations like before my mom's, my mom is a baby boomer, they did not like talking about the past. Like it didn't seem like there was open communication. Um, but it seems like people in like my mom's generation, your grandparents' generation kind of want to change that so what's what's it like in your family?
0: Yeah, that's interesting so my uh my dad's side, my grandpa is really into genealogy and he actually has written a memoir um he hasn't published it, but about his life, and so, like I've read bits and pieces of that um and Pretty like, wild, a- huh? I know, yeah, and <laughs> that's, it's, he's, you know, he's very, like, he talks about it, but it's in a very kind of, like, genealogical, like, dates and names, and I never really, like, connected much with that style mm-hmm. of, like, storytelling, and just recently, he, he was working on, like, a fictionalized version of my grandma's, like, ancestors, like, coming to, America from Ireland. And I love the fictionalized version that it felt a lot more accessible to me. Um, mm. so that's kind of cool that he's like, he does that in writing. And I feel like I, I can connect more with that than like talking to him sometimes. And like my dad doesn't really necessarily know all that detail. That's all like my grandparents. And my mom also doesn't really know a lot of those details, but my aunt is like really engaged with family history stuff. And My grandparents on that side are dead. They didn't talk much about that to me, but there are these like interviews that my aunt did with um, my grandma and great grandmothers. So I'm glad it's documented. Well, and my grandpa and my mom's side, he he also wrote a memoir. (laughs) Um, So I've read parts of that as well. So it's very like, I feel lucky to have a lot of it like documented, but again, it's often like both of my grandfathers wrote memoirs and not my grandmother's Um, yeah interesting
1: so on the album you're highlighting family and community within the setting of climate apocalypse and you made the album not not only just during COVID but also that like crazy heat wave in Portland that was happening last year so how did ruminating on these themes during such a crazy time change you and change the songs?
0: Hmm. I think the actual being in the studio is less a less reflective time because you're so like in the recording. I feel like the reflectiveness came a lot before going into the studio. Um, seems like it's been trending Lately, like, Adrienne Marie Brown and Parable of the Sower and, like, all that. Adrienne Marie Brown talks a lot about, like, simultaneously being, like, connected to ancestors and also, like, adapting to change and, like, moving forward. And I think I was thinking a lot about that. Like, learning from previous generations and seeing how, like, what ways we can move forward or adapt through that kind of, like, reflectiveness, I think.
1: Uh, In your new promo pics with Allison, it seems like, I could be wrong, but you're, like, playing with your gender a little bit in your promo pics, especially with your amazing purple suit, which people might not be able to tell it's purple because the promo pics are in black and white. But tell me about that suit and also, like, what is your relationship to gender like these days and how has it evolved for you?
0: Hmm. Well, I'll start with the suit because that's easier to answer. <laughs> um, I <laughs> got it for a friend's wedding. My best friend from childhood um, got married over the summer right after um, our recording session. So I got a suit fitted for that and I was a bridesmaid. So I had to wear pu- purple to fit with the wedding colors and purple is my favorite color and I didn't want to wear a dress because of gender stuff. <laughs> so, um, I got a purple suit and then because we knew we were going to be doing a roll of black and white film, I was like, Oh, I'll wear this. Cause I think the purple suit might be a bit much for promo, but I like the black and white photos.
1: Yeah. Very old timey.
0: <laughs> and as far as my relationship with gender, I don't, it feels private right now.
1: Cool. You have been performing since you were a little kid and recording music, since you were like a freshman in high school. And you were talking to, I I'm, I'm, keep referring to the Cameron interview, but it really was awesome. Um, you said when you first released your debut album, it changed your relationship to music and it made like it more public than private and you lost your private relationship with music. How did being alone, isolating during the pandemic allow you to regain that back and how will you hold on to that private relationship?
0: That is like what I'm trying to figure out right now. I didn't really want to play at all for most of the pandemic. Yeah, I just like didn't really want to play. And then I've started to want to play a little bit more. It's, it's, It's a difficult, relationship for me sometimes. Um, well, it was one of the reasons I wanted to go back to school because I thought that maybe if I, if music wasn't always the center of my life, then I would want to play it more, which I think is true. Because sometimes when it's your job and it's your hobby and it's your social life, it gets exhausting, especially when you have to like make it super public and promote it all the time. Um, mm-hmm. so I was starting to have a lot of negative associations with it. Recording with Allison felt really positive, which is great. I'm curious to see what touring is like, um, as we tour this album to see if, if it feels, feels like a positive experience. I think it will be because I love performing with Allison. Like, cause when we're on stage, we're just playing and it's so fun. And I love getting that energy from the audience. I love that stuff. I love playing. And I like getting to, like, see friends in different places, like, all that stuff I love. It's just the the business side of things just kind of sucks the joy out of it. And having to, like, having to, like, build a narrative around what I do is exhausting. Yeah. And you kind of have to do that. Yeah. Um, I get that. Yeah.
1: Um before I let you go, will you do the lightning round? Sure. It's going to be fun.
0: <laughs> so what does can you explain to me what that involves?
1: Yes, these are fun, lighthearted questions that you will enjoy. Here we go. What was the first song you learned on the guitar?
0: Um it was a song I wrote. Untitled.
1: (laughs) Untitled, great. Uh, Untitled 01. (laughs) Uh, What is your karaoke song? Like a Virgin. Mm. Uh, Dogs or cats or something else?
0: Um, I was pet-sitting some rats over the pandemic, and I really, really loved them. They're like little tiny dogs. I know. I love dogs, but I might be a rat person.
1: Mm, um, who was your first celebrity crush?
0: Mm, I'd have to be between Aragorn. Well, Vigga Mortensen as Aragorn and uh, Claire Danes as Angela Chase in My So-Called Life. Mm.
1: Both cannot argue with either of those. First album you bought with your own money.
0: Oh my god, it's so long ago. It was probably like natalie Being master or some like celtic fiddle album maybe hanukkah castle
1: oh i hope it's hanukkah <laughs> i hear that you like to read books uh what is the last book you read
0: i just finished song of solomon by tony morrison
1: nice let's do one more okay, okay flying or invisibility invisibility perfect all right <laughs> Well, thanks, Tatiana. This is great to talk to you. I really appreciate you spending so much time and putting up with me.
0: Well, thank yeah, it's really fun talking. Um, I appreciate the questions. It was caught me caught me off guard sometimes. It's good.
1: This week's episode of Basic Folk was produced by me, Cindy. Our music composed by Alex Stanton. You can find Basic Folk wherever you get podcasts. You can search on the SiriusXM app for Basic Folk. You can find us on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network or at our website, basicfolk.com.
0: Thanks for listening. Bye.